So I want to open this morning with a story. Uh, on January the 15th, 2009, a pilot called Chesley Sullenberger, or Sully to his friends, uh, took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York. Uh, and he was flying an Airbus A320, and it had 155 people on board. Just after takeoff, he ran into difficulties, really serious difficulties. A flock of Canada geese was flying across his flight path, and they basically got sucked into the engines. It was carnage. I mean, most of the geese died, but what happened to the, the airplane was that both its engines failed completely, no power whatsoever. Uh, now, he's a, a pilot of 40-odd years' experience, and he knew that they were in big, big trouble. And so he made a series of split-second decisions. He made an assessment, can I get back to LaGuardia Airport? And he and his co-pilot didn't think that they could. And he, sent, he then thought, can I get to the next available landing strip? And of course, pilots know where all of those are in times like these. And he didn't feel he could. He had no energy to get there. And so he made a decision that he would do a water landing on the Hudson River uh, in the middle of New York City. He just made that decision. Uh, and and it's a, it was a very brave and very courageous decision based on years and years of wisdom. And it required very, very careful timing. So he's piloting this plane. It's absolutely silent. There's no jet engine noise. And he said that as the plane came down into the water, it was the, the, the worst pit of your stomach feeling that he'd ever felt in his life. Like roller coasters were nothing compared to this because he knew what he was carrying in that plane with him. He was carrying all the crew, himself and his buddy, and 155 passengers. But through incredible skill, he navigated the plane down, and he did the water landing successfully, and he brought the plane to a halt, and it rests on the water. And of course, he's been on the radio, and they've got boats out, and they're rescuing people, and all 155 people were saved. Every single person was saved. It's a great, great story. You may remember it from the news back in 2009. It was like a massive headline around the world. When he was asked afterwards how he did it, he basically said, all 42 years of my education, experience, training, skill, and know-how went into a series of split-second decisions, um, and a whole lot of courage went with it as well, and I just knew I had to do this thing. Now, when they did a simulation afterwards, and they replayed all of his steps and, and everything he could have done but didn't, they came to the same conclusion that he did, that you made the right call. You made the right decision, you landed that plane, you saved those people, and that was exactly the right decision, the right thing to do. Uh, one of the funny things that happened to him, he got loads of honors and awards, but one of the funny things that happened to him was that, obviously, like the inside of the plane eventually got wet, and he had a library book. He had a library book from New York Library. Let me just uh, look up the, uh, the title of the book. Um, it, it was called Balancing Safety and Accountability <laughs> in, his, in his pack, and it was in the, in the plane. Um, and this book got wet, uh, and they retrieved it as part of gathering up all the, all the, all the stuff. Um, and he got this soaked book back, and he went back to the library, and he said, I'm really sorry, this book's damaged. And they said, it's okay, Sully. You can have that waived. We won't charge you the late fee or the damage fee. And in fact, what happened was he was invited to a ceremony um, where he was given the keys to the city of New York, which is one of the highest civilian honors that you can ever have. And the publisher of the book was at the ceremony, uh, and they gave him a brand new copy uh, to mark the fact that he had uh, lost this book. But he went on to become 
like quite a famous and well-known person, and he did get loads of honors and awards for his courage. And we're talking today about wisdom, timing, and courage. Talking about wisdom, timing, and courage. We're in part two of our assigned series uh, this morning. Uh, We're looking at what it means to be called of God, what it means to be assigned of God. And last weekend, we looked at the story of Moses, didn't we? We looked at how Moses uh, was appointed and called by God. Um, And uh, we picked out three qualities or things that happened with Moses in that um, original story of Moses and the burning bush. And we said that you need friends, you need abilities, and you need backing. And it spells fab. Anyone remember that? Yeah, fab, friends, abilities, backing. If you married up friends, abilities, and backing with wisdom, time, and courage, I've got to tell you, there's not an awful lot that you're not going to win. You're going to, you're going to win a lot of stuff in God if you take those six things with you uh, into your life. So we're looking today at a particular story uh, from the Old Testament um, that has these qualities and these aspects to it uh, in great measure. It's a fantastic story uh, which takes us back nearly 2,500 years ago uh, and and a heroine in it is assigned and it's filled with wisdom, timing and courage from this heroine. Um, And in fact she needs all three of these things to win the day because her assignment is to rescue her people and it's very similar to Sully's assignment to rescue the people on his plane. We find ourselves 480 years before the birth of Jesus, uh, and we find ourselves 30 years before Nehemiah gets sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now today's message comes from the book of Esther in the Bible, um, and it's set in the ancient empire of Persia. Now at the time of writing, the Persian empire was the biggest empire the world has ever seen or has ever seen since then. It was even bigger than the Roman empire. Uh, Historians reckon that over half of humanity lived inside the Persian Empire at its height. That's just a ridiculous number of people. If you were going to try and superimpose a map of the Persian Empire on today's world map, you would have to start in northern Sudan, and you'd move all the way up through the Mediterranean to North Macedonia, and then you'd go across through the Caucasus Mountains and the Caspian Sea, and you'd end up in Azerbaijan, and then you'd come down into northern India, and then you'd come back around to the Gulf, It's huge. It was an enormous, enormous territory. If you were looking at modern-day countries that exist inside this territory, uh, let me just read those to you. We have Israel, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Kuwait. This is a colossal empire. Um, And ruling over this empire at the time of our story is a king called Ahasuerus. Uh, But the Greeks called him Xerxes, and I'm going to call him Xerxes for the rest of this sermon, because Xerxes is a cooler name than Ahasuerus. Anyone here want to be brave and lift up their hand and say they've got Xerxes, either as a first name or a middle name? Anyone at all? Okay, that's a shame. We would have clapped you if you'd have had that. Xerxes is awesome. It's such such a great name. Two X's in it. Not many names with two X's in. Anyway... In Esther, the book of Esther, in the Old Testament, in chapter 1, verse 1, the very opening of Esther, uh, it says that Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa at the heart of the Persian Empire. And so what we're looking at here is a story set on a mega stage. And the action unfolds in the third year of Xerxes' reign. Uh, Now, Xerxes decides that he's going to hold like a celebration to kind of mark his wealth and ability and his prestige and his power, Uh, and and he decides to hold this for a full 180 days. Now, 180 days is nearly half a year. 
Imagine holding something for half a year just to show off your cash and your power. I mean, we're talking on a different level here. This guy had wealth and power, and he wanted to tell the whole world about it. Um, The story starts at the end of this massive long thing of 180 days where he holds a feast for all the officials who are appointed uh, as leaders and nobles from all the different provinces. Um, And uh, he invites them to this feast. Uh, And let me just take you through. Uh, You might want to jump in your YouVersion Bible app or in your physical Bibles if you want to. We have an event for today and you can follow along the story there if you want to. Um, Esther chapter 1 from verse 5 I just want to give you a picture of the the lavish wealth and the opulent status that Xerxes had. Um, It says this uh, from verse 5, at the end of this time, so in other words at the end of the 180 days of showing off, let's just put it like it really is, at the end of this time the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches. Anyone here got a gold and silver couch? I haven't. Mine comes from Ikea. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, whatever that is. Or porphyry, I think some translations have. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. And that's just the pavement. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti, his wife, also gave a feast for the women of King Xerxes' palace. I want you to imagine for a minute that all of us have been invited to that party and we get given a unique gold goblet. And we are told you can have as much wine as you like. And I'm, you know, I know that there are people who struggle with alcohol. I get that. Hey, listen, this isn't about that. What the, what the writer of the book of Esther is trying to say, there is unlimited blessing here. There is unlimited opportunity and there is unlimited extravagance. And it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's wealthy. When you came into this building this morning, you, you may have just gone straight past it because you're used to it, or maybe if you're one of our new guests today, you might have seen this plaque on the wall. And the plaque says what our mission statement is. Our mission statement is transformed lives, transforming lives. And what that means is that when a life is transformed by the power of Jesus, other people get to see that, and they're excited, and they're drawn into the story, and they get transformed as well. You know, we dedicated little Jaden, and it's so great to have so many of you, you, your friends and family here today. I'm praying that that little boy is transformed by the power of Jesus in his life, and he becomes like that warrior, Benaiah. That's transformation, and that other people, when they see that, they will be transformed as well. And underneath our sign, which says transformed lives, transforming lives, you will see four statements beginning with the letter B, and, uh, build, become, belong, and be assigned. And they are all ways that you can jumpstart your journey in Jesus to be the whole person that Jesus is asking you to become. Now this, is a, this series that we're, we're doing right now, we're in week two. It leads up to Palm Sunday on the 10th of April and there are six episodes in it. Um, and what we want to do with this series on team is we want to bring you a, a set of messages that help you understand what it means to be assigned. Because assignment from God carries things with it that are important for us to understand. 
Just as we learned how fab was important last week for Moses, you're going to learn that wisdom, timing, and courage are everything for Esther this week. And as the weeks unfold, I'm hoping that as each of our messages come to you, you will get more and more insight into what it means to be assigned of God to the tasks he's asking you to fulfill in your life. This morning's story is centered around this heroine, Esther, and she's an absolute heroine. She's a beautiful young Jewish woman who rescues her whole nationality from a dreadful fate. Uh, and it's an, on an assignment through God, and it's an assignment that needs the same level of wisdom and timing and courage that Sully, our pilot, had to show when he landed this plane in the Hudson River. Very different circumstances, very different number of people, very different technology, but the same drama is there. The same need is there to save people and not let anyone perish. Now, the book of Esther, I've got to tell you, it's like a blockbuster epic. It's, it's just a great story. You know, it lends itself to a wild, big film. It lends itself to action comics. You know, the characters are massive. It's a blockbuster epic. You know, the characters are standout, and the drama is really thrilling. You can read Esther in a breeze because it's such a great story really quickly. You know, I think it's 10 chapters long, and, you, and you've suddenly found you've read it. It's great. It just pulls you along because the, the drama and the excitement is so good. Now, we have some, as with all blockbuster epics, we have some great characters in it. We have this super powerful King Xerxes, and he's right up there in terms of, of leadership. Um, we also have this stunning uh, young Jewish girl called Esther, and she's the heroine of the story, and uh, she has this enormous assignment given to her. Um, now, Esther is an orphan. She doesn't have a mum and dad anymore, but her cousin, her older cousin, is a man called Mordecai. Uh, they're both Jewish, and he has raised her as his own. So, she, you know, he's got, uh, he's got this oversight over her. And so she's not left on her own, and she's raised up, and he looks after her. Now, Mordecai is a really wise guy. He's, uh, he's kind of, you know, sort of uh, measured, principled, steady, uh, just a really good guy. He, he, he sticks to his principles really deeply. He's the kind of guy you'd have as an elder in a church. Uh, Mordecai is that kind of person. And of course, no epic story is complete without a villain. And when I look at you, I'm not thinking you're a villain, by the way, if you catch my eye. I'm just saying that every, <laughs> every story has a villain in it, okay? And this villain in this story is called Haman. And Haman is very full of himself, and he's very power-hungry. And partway through the story, he rises up to become number two in, in the Persian Empire, and it goes to his head, and he kind of goes off the rails. And the drama of the story is what happens when he tries to, uh, to do some wrong stuff. So let's have a quick look at uh, what, how the story unfolds. Straight after this feast, King Xerxes issues an order. He says, bring Vashti to me. This is his wife. And uh, now he might be the, the, the emperor of the most powerful uh, empire that the world has ever seen, and he might have just been showing off his wealth for 180 days, and he might have just been pouring out the wine really liberally, but his wife says no. She says, I'm not coming. Now, I, he doesn't, there isn't a reason given. She just says she's not going to go. And he is furious. And being as powerful as he is, he just says, right, that's it. Off you go. You are banished. And he banishes Vashti. I mean, it's like a kind of fairy tale thing. You know, it's like, right, you're not good enough. Out you go. And so what he does is he sets up a competition or a, a survey of all of the beautiful women in the, per, in the Persian Empire, and he asks them to come to be enrolled in his harem. Now, I'm sorry, you know, this is not a terribly Christian story. He has women in a harem. You're going to have to overlook that a little bit, okay? 
You are. It's not the point of the story. Uh, And amongst the beauty pageant that arrives in the harem, Esther appears because she is beautiful. She's a stunner. You know, she's kind of supermodel quality. She's there, and she's included in the harem. And now, now, ladies, you know, if you thought that it took you a while to get your nails or your eyelashes or your hair... And I I sense I'm treading into very, very tricky waters right now. But if you thought that that took a long time to get ready to go out-out, you know, not just out, but out-out, that pales into insignificance by the level of the beauty treatments that these ladies had in this harem. We're talking six months with an oil of myrrh treatment package. Six months! And then after that was finished, we're talking six months with further cosmetics and and, and perfumes and stuff. This was a whole 12-month beautification system. And that was before they were even allowed to be introduced to Xerxes. I mean, he's a fussy guy, isn't he? So this is going on. And they go through this program and and this treatment. And then eventually, uh, by the way, gents, Mother's Day, 27th of March. Early, early warning, you know? And also speak to the women in your life about the things that they want and the cosmetics they like, please. Yeah, don't just buy them the thing you see on the shelf. Have a conversation, yeah? Conversation. So great. Find out what she likes. <laughs> Amen, indeed. You heard it here first, gentlemen. When Esther gets introduced to Xerxes... Finally, after the 12-month beautification program, and bear in mind, she was massively gorgeous already, he is so pleased with her that he makes her his queen. And, but at this point, she, he is still not aware that she's Jewish. Now, Esther's cousin Mordecai rises up and becomes a government official, uh, and uh, he, they're not aware that he's a Jew either, but he just does a job, his job really, really well. And in fact, he foils an assassination plot against Xerxes quite early on in his job. Uh, he prevents two guys plotting against Xerxes, and he, uh, he, he sorts it. Um, and, and that's really key to the action. Now, at this time, Haman then rises to prominence as well. And he starts strutting around, and he starts saying to people, you, you all need to bow to me in the streets, because do you know what? I'm number two here, and you need to all bow down. Um, and, and, and Mordecai's not having it. He's like, no, you're just full of yourself. We're not doing that. And so he doesn't bow down, and Haman is really, really angry about it. And he, st- he goes steaming off, and he, he makes a vow that he's going to kill Mordecai and all the Jews in the Persian kingdom. There's a hatred that rises up in his heart. Um, and it's really ugly, really ugly. And bear in mind that most of the Jews at that time were living in the Persian kingdom. They weren't living in Israel. They were still in exile. And so this would have had a huge impact on them. Uh, the threat is very real, and it causes all the Jews a huge amount of, uh, of stress and fear and they get into sackcloth and ashes and they're praying and they're, they're, they're leaning into God to get an answer. Now Mordecai finds out about the plot to kill all his fellow Jews and uh, country, countrymen and countrywomen and he tells Queen Esther about it. You can follow along with me just in Esther chapter 4 verses, from verse 13. Uh, have a listen to this. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And you know, church, just as an aside, we are a royal priesthood. And I think that sentence applies to us. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Perhaps that applies to all of us. 
Perhaps that, that is something we need to take into our lives as something that sits on us from Jesus. Then Esther gets, when she gets this message from Mordecai, she embraces her assignment. She knows what she has to do. She has that wisdom of knowing and seeing ahead and thinking, right, how am I going to do this? And she decides to take some big risks. And this is where the, the wisdom and the timing and the courage come in. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 15 there of chapter 4. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will, go into the king, I will go to the king even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. Now the challenge here for Esther is you don't just casually approach the king of Persia. You don't just walk up to him casually in a corridor and say, Hey, you know, Xerxes, I've got this bit of a problem. You know, I really need you to help me. You don't do that. In fact, Xerxes only has people come into his presence when he summons them. And she's not been summoned by him for a good 30 days. So she knows that by going into that inner courtyard, which is his kind of boundary line of where you're allowed to be, she is kind of violating a law to do that. So that's in her mind as she thinks that. But then she takes the risk. She kind of doesn't wait to be summoned. It's too urgent. This plot to attack all the Jews and kill them, this is an edict that's gone out. You know, Haman has actually done some really dark and horrible things. He's basically tricked King Xerxes into, uh, into agreeing to sign a decree in which all of the Jews get killed. And that decree has gone out. And that's why Mordecai is now telling Esther, listen, Esther, you need to do something now because we're in real trouble here. So she takes the risk. She enters the inner courtyard. She wins the king's favor and she is summoned forward. But she doesn't just ask for what she needs there and then. Instead, she asks Xerxes and Haman, who is her arch enemy, to be guests at a banquet. And during the feasting that ensues, the king asks Esther what she would really like, up to half her kingdom. And she paces it. She doesn't go straight in for the request. She waits and she says, actually, will, will you two come back tomorrow to come to another banquet? And what she does is she's very wise. She builds interest. She builds, like the, in, in the king's heart, there's something building that he wants to really know what it is she wants. But she doesn't give that to him straight away. And so the interest builds. You know how we live in this instant culture, we just get everything you want straight away. Sometimes we don't value it as much. We're not so interested in it as much. But for the thing we've had to work for or wait for, the interest and the value is a little bit higher, isn't it? And then what she finds is, uh, so they, 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 she invites them to the banquet. They come to the banquet, and he asks her uh, what she wants. And she asks, no, come to another banquet. And in between the first banquet and the second banquet, the king can't sleep. He's awake at night. And there's a restlessness on him. And I would put it to you that that restlessness has come from God because God is stepping in and doing his timing piece here. And then he asks, the king asks for the, the, chron, the, chron, uh, the chronicles of the kingdom to be read to him, the, uh, the story of all the events so far. I guess, you know, if you're struggling to sleep, you can read back through your diary. I, I don't know. But he does that, and he, he hears, that he re, he's reminded that Mordecai actually saves his life. And so he, he, he kind of says, well, what do we do for Mordecai? Um, and then he finds out that nothing was done, and so he calls Haman in, and he says, well, you know, what would you do for a hero, Haman? And Haman's so full of himself, he thinks it's about him. So he kind of designs this really lavish way of being respected and honored, only to find that the king then says, I want you to do that for Mordecai. 
And Haman's like, oh man, and he's really even more angry than he was before. And then uh, he is called back, Haman and, and the king are called back to uh, the second banquet. Um, and uh, the, so now what's happening is uh, the king then asks Esther, okay, what is it that you want? You know, you've approached me in the inner courtyard and, and you've not said. You've approached me through the, the first banquet and you've not said. We're at the second banquet. What do you need? What do you need? And Esther says, I need your help. There's been an order issued where me and my people are all going to be killed. We're all going to die. And the person who's caused this to happen is sitting right at the table with us, and it's Haman. And Haman is horrified. And the king is so angry. And the king basically orders Haman to be hanged there and then. And Haman is done away with, and, and, and the evil that he's perpetuating is righted. Now, because the king can't undo the first decree, what he does is he overwrites the first decree with another one. And he says, right, for all of those Jews that were going to be destroyed or going to be attacked on this particular day, on this particular month, now I'm going to give you permission to defend yourselves, you Jewish people. You go ahead and look after your property, defend your people. Uh, You can arm yourselves, you can fight back. And that's exactly what they do, and they defend themselves. And so Esther's wisdom and timing and courage win the day, and the people of, uh, of, of Israel, the Jewish nation, get saved from this terrible, terrible fate. They are all rescued because of Esther's action. Uh, Mordecai gets appointed to, effectively, Haman's position, and he becomes the second in command in the the kingdom. And that's a right appointment because of his loyalty to Xerxes. And actually, I've got to say to you that if you go to uh, an Orthodox Jewish synagogue today, right now, in 2022, they will still celebrate the Feast of Purim which is the feast marking that uh, Esther's setting them free 2,500 odd years ago. Isn't that incredible? They still celebrate it to this day. It's still really important. They still retell the story of Esther. Esther is one of their most popular kind of stories that they share uh, in in their culture. I want to tell you kind of three key points just briefly uh, before we worship again. What we're really talking about in this assignment that Esther has is wisdom, timing, courage. She displays wisdom because she knows what to do. Wisdom is one of those things where you've got, you kind of just know what to do or you've been shown what to do. And we all need it. And sometimes we don't have it. And what I'd say to uh, us BCC is that we need to be able to ask for wisdom as and when the need arises. We need to be able to just ask for it. Wisdom is such a key thing. Uh, she has, Esther has the wisdom to know what to do. She knows that it needs to be a series of steps. Otherwise, the request is going to fall flat. The interest won't be there, and it will be brushed aside. So she has wisdom. Um, uh, wisdom is one of these strange things. Uh, let me just... Uh, hold on just a sec. Uh, yeah, clever might be being intelligent, but wisdom is knowing what to do. Yeah? So you could be really clever and you might be really intelligent, but wisdom is applying that so that you know exactly what to do. Uh, there's a lady called Joyce Meyer. She, you probably know her. She's, you know, she does a lot of preaching and speaking. She's based in the States. She says that wisdom is still being happy with the decisions you took many years after you took them. Wisdom is still being happy with the decisions you took many years later after you took the decision. Because wisdom has a kind of fruit to it. And you, you can tell often by looking back whether a decision was a good one. So here's the key thing for us, BCC, as church. 
You don't have to be super intelligent, you simply have to ask God for wisdom. He will give you wisdom. Now, we all have varying abilities in the room, don't we? We've got, you know, um, there's things I, I wouldn't even be, be able to begin to know how to do. You know, one of our elders right now is looking after our live stream sound, I think. Like, if you put me in front of that desk with all of those different controls on it, I'd be a disaster. That would just be such a bad idea because I don't have the wisdom. Whereas I think Dan does have the wisdom. And praise God for him that he, does, he knows how to do his job. Each of us have different abilities and capacities, but when we don't have the know-how or the, the thing what we need to, to know to do next, we can ask God. So whatever deficiency we have, whatever's missing in our wisdom, ask God for it. It says in James chapter 1, verse 5, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly or without finding fault, and it will be given to him. We get given wisdom from God when we're on God's assignments. When we try to do things without the wisdom of God, we come a cropper. If we try and go off on our own way. Esther shows great wisdom in what to do and how to build the king's interest in her problem. Really skillful what she does. Now, not only does she do it skillfully, she does it with great timing. She paces the sequence really well. She asks for the, people of, uh, the Jewish people in the fortress of Susa to pray with her, to set up favor for the request. Then she goes into the inner courtyard and takes that big risk, you know, because that was illegal to do that. Then she, she hears the king, but she doesn't ask for what she wants straight away. She says, hey, come to my banquet. And then at the second banquet, you know, the banquet, she says, well, come to my banquet tomorrow. She paces this really, really well. And if it, I just want you to imagine for a minute. Imagine you're in this room and you have responsibility for every single person in Great Britain surviving. And you know a way to do it. And you've got to go and ask someone's help. You're going to go and ask someone's help pretty much straight away, I'm guessing. It took a lot of confidence and waiting on God and a sense of his timing to pace that, to pitch that exactly right. Do you see what I'm saying? That would have been so tempting for me to just blurt straight away out to King Xerxes, oh, this is what I need. She didn't do that. She had the presence of mind and a sense of timing to wait until she knew that it was optimal to bring her request. So timing is absolutely key. Her patience adds great power to her case. Her wisdom is mixed with great timing. Something I want you to notice is that the timing is interwoven with what God's doing. There's no way that Esther was responsible for King Xerxes' sleepless night. She wasn't responsible for him happening to hear the record of what Mordecai did. That was God doing that. Even though the book of Esther doesn't mention the person of God, that is God's hand on the timing. And by asking to wait and to just get the timing right, God is able to do his thing. And how many times have we ignored God in that process ourselves? Come on, admit it. We've, we've got, we know what it is we need to do, uh, but we don't wait on God's timing to, to get it exactly right. And if we could only get the combination of wisdom and timing right, we would be so much more effective on our assignments. Are you with me still? Yeah? I'm going to ask uh, Sheila and the worship team just to come on back up. That would be great, team. And just begin to play just as you feel led. That's brilliant. And the third thing to say to you is courage. So our message today from uh, the Assigned series, part two, is wisdom, timing, and courage from the example of Esther. And the final thing she shows is a lot of courage. She shows courage in deciding to take action. She shows courage in stepping into the inner courtyard where she knew that actually the rules were that it was pain of death. She showed a lot of courage. She says, if I perish, I perish, but she was willing to do it anyway. 
She shows courage in being able to wait patiently, even though the fate of her people hung on her waiting patiently. And then she, shows, she chose remarkable courage at the, at the second banquet. If you think about it, you're sitting there with King Xerxes and your arch enemy who's responsible for all of this, and you say it. She actually says it. You know, one of our difficulties, church, is we have the wisdom and the timing, and then when we come to it, we're like, oh, I can't do it. Anyone identify with that? I do. I struggle. It's really hard to speak truth to power, isn't it, church? So, so hard. Those hard conversations, oh, man, they can be some of the hardest things you ever do. But she says it. She has courage, and she says it, and she does it. To his face, at a, at a banquet, that is courage. That is courage. And I want to encourage you. Let's all, just all stand with me for, for just a moment. We're going to worship Thank you for listening so intently this morning, BCC. Thank you, all of you guys online, for listening in. We're going to respond around the areas of wisdom, timing, and courage after we've worshipped again. But I want to encourage you to have courage in the things that you're called to do. Have wisdom. Think about the timing. Ask God for courage. Let's sing. Thanks, Sheila. Thanks, team. <laughs>